Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is episode number 038 of The Knife Perspective. This is the MagnaCast. How you doing tonight, Kyle? Oh, I'm exhausted. We uh, put in um, a fence around a garden that we're going to be planting that was 40 by 45 and drilled 26 post holes uh, eight inch post holes, uh, three feet deep. You, you earned your PhD today. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm pretty exhausted. I got, I got two beers lined up here and glad to be, be sitting for a little while. So, um, but I'm glad the, the fence is done and that's one of the last kind of major home projects before, uh, can start working on knives. Which is about time to do because blade show is just around the corner. Yeah, I don't know if you uh, follow Grace Horn. Um, her stories kind of make me, uh, I, I like them and get uh, get a little panicky every time I see them because she's been doing like a countdown to Blade Show. She's yeah. been doing all sorts of like cool numbers and stuff with scissors and all sorts of different things around her shop. But then it's like, man, there's really only like 80, 85 days left or whatever. <laughs> so my family has already been the, okay, dad, you're not going to be cooking dinner anymore. We're going to see you for 15 minutes in the morning every day because you're going to leave for work right after breakfast and you're going to get home after dinner and you're going to be stressed out, but it's okay. Time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about Grace Horn, did you see, I guess it's been a couple of blade shows, at least three or four blade shows since, but she did the daggers that looked like a woman wearing a corset. Uh, no, I think I missed those. That sounds, sounds pretty cool though. You absolutely need to do yourself a favor and look them up and you absolutely do not need to do it near your wife because they may or may not be anatomically correct. Awesome. And they (laughs) are beautiful. Nice. Yeah. She's a, she's extremely talented. I, I don't know how she can do some of the intricate gold inlay and stuff that she does, but her artistry is amazing. And if I remember correctly, her shop is like a medieval privet privy. Okay. Like it was a, 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 a public outhouse hundreds or maybe uh, probably hundreds, not thousands, but many hundreds of years ago. Hmm. But it's this beautiful stone building that has now I assume been reclaimed, but it's her workshop now. Okay. Huh. That's really cool. Yeah. Something about working in a, a a bathroom that's several hundred years old. Mm-hmm. Her shop yeah. is an outhouse that's older than our country. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. Cool. So, how you? What have you been working on? What have you been up to? Um, I oh, I, I gotta post pictures. Um, I got my new Wilmot grinder. Oh, it's nice. Awesome. Like life changing 
amazing. Very cool. The tracking on that thing is incredible. And I didn't really appreciate the difference that the direct drive makes. Mm -hmm. But I have absolutely 100% two glasses full drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah, I, that's the only the only kind of grinder I've known. I, I've never actually ground on a KMG, but the one I built first, or the only one I built, has been that direct drive one. Yeah, I love. I I still have my original KMG. It's a it's a workhorse. I love it, but man, the the tracking on this thing is amazing. The bearings are ten years guaranteed. Okay, you can you can. You can turn it on with a belt, everything running, and stand next to it and talk in a regular voice. Like it is quiet and smooth. Okay. The only and the nice thing is it takes all my K and G uh, tools. Uh, nice. But the arms need to be because the motor's direct drive need to be about an inch and a half shorter. Hmm. So it's been a constant balance of okay, I really do need this tool, so I'm now going to have to go cut, cut an inch and a half off of the inch and a half bar stock. It doesn't just go all the way through the back? Uh, no, it's um, the uh, the housing of the motor sits. Ah. So, yeah, the tool arms will hit the, uh, the housing of the motor. They don't pass through because the motor's right behind them. Gotcha. Um, well, that's an easy fix. Yeah. It just, uh, it's better than it being an inch and a half too short. Yeah. Oh, believe me. I've had that <laughs> problem for years. <laughs> All right. Um, so but, you want to go into our sponsors now on that note or? Well, we can, I was going to about the pollen cause it's the South and the, the pollen's pretty bad, oh. but nobody wants to hear that. Let's, let's talk about our sponsors. Yeah. We got our premium sponsors, old town cutlery. Uh, make sure you check them out. They uh, they have all sorts of wonderful knives, and they also have a plethora of knife making supplies now. Lots of lots of really good handle material already cut up into scales and blocks and everything, and yeah, belts and epoxy and all sorts of stuff that knife makers need. So uh, definitely give them a sh uh, check out. I'm sorry to interrupt, but if you're a hobbyist, they they've got finished blade blanks, they've got pen stock, they've got handle material, so you can kind of do one project at a time, turnkey, get everything you need, and not have to pay for a twelve by twelve sheet of materials. Like you said, it's cut up to just one handle size, just enough pins for one knife, one blade uh, blank. So it's a great opportunity for for those that want to dip their toe in and not have to way over invest in materials. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then uh, along with Old Town Cutlery, John Kaufman of Dragonfly Bladeworks is also a premium sponsor. And uh, you can find his knives at Old Town Cutlery. I believe he pretty much sells almost all of his knives through Old Town Cutlery. I know he takes some direct orders, but I think uh, he puts most of his knives uh, on Old Town. I think they buy everything he makes. Yeah. I know John does a great job. I've had the pleasure of handling a couple of his knives and he he does great work the handles feel great and uh does some great pinouts on his handles he's another graduate of uh andy roy and he really does some very elaborate pinouts mm -hmm. and then you've we've got uh, cage daily knives and dogwood custom knives as always sponsoring the podcast and you can find our knives 
both of our knives at Old Town Cutlery, as we talked about before. And uh, you can find Dan's knives at not the Knife Center, the Knife House, and Cook Station. So make sure you check out all three of those other distributors. Make sure you give them some love. So uh, how's your uh, how's your work life balance? Are you trying to uh, you fill in orders and prepping for Blade Show yet? Uh, just about ready to start prepping for Blade Show with uh, my upcoming foray into knife making full time. Uh, we're trying or they're trying to do a whole bunch of tests at work, uh, get them done before everything starts moving down to San Antonio. So yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty overwhelming, and we, we've been knocking out a bunch of house projects that my wife is building the big garden like i i said we she's been growing a bunch of tomatoes we have tomatoes that are like 12 inches high already and um a bunch of stuff that needs to get put in the gar or get put in the ground here in about the next week so want to get the the fence wanted to get the fence up so that she can start getting that stuff in the in the ground and then yeah i've got uh about about 15 blades that are after heat treat ready to to get ground so that'll be be running running fast here soon you've got the life is hell trifecta new house with projects pinch time and your day job and you've got to spin up for blade show yeah it is a good thing you're young yeah well i'm feeling older and older every day (laughs) it's pretty pretty amazing um but yeah it's gonna be gonna be pretty cool can't wait to to see blade show i know the icce show in texas uh watched a bunch of stuff this weekend looked like that was a a great show looked like everybody was having a lot of fun down there so i can't wait for atlanta yeah i'm uh i'm ready to go i got my vaccine i don't know how they're gonna handle it but however they do it i'm in yep yeah i'm gonna be hopefully finding or getting a vaccine here soon they're just about ready to open it up to to everybody here in Illinois. So I got kind of lucky. Beth sent, I got a message from Beth. She's like, you are eligible for the vaccine, but you're not going to like it. Hmm. Like, what do you mean? She goes, well, so you need one of two criteria. And since you're helping coach wrestling, that counts as one. And since your BMI is over 30, that's the other one because you're fat. I'm like, Oh, (laughs) I can lose weight. (laughs) I'm great. For the first time in my life, being fat is a positive. Nice. <laughs> so I, I've got a shout out to to talk about. Uh, Matt Burchett made this awesome um, little bottle opener, and uh, I've got a, a hoe garden right here. So I usually edit these out from Dan doing it, but I'm going to do it for this one. But oh, uh, so it's cool oh, when you do it. It didn't make the noise, but it, li- it lifted the cap off perfectly. But yeah, uh, his Instagram is Mattster of none uh, with underscores in between of and none. Great guy. Hopefully he'll be able to make it for Blade Show, but he said he's probably not going to be able to to make it with all the work stuff he has going on. But definitely give him a follow. Check him out. Uh, great guy. Love seeing him in Blade Show in 2019. So hopefully he's able to make it, but uh, we'll catch him at another show if he's not. And, you know, just as a point of honor, you really should chug that beer and then open the next one so we can get that good solid sound. I already opened the can one. I've been drinking that one and I was hoping the bottle would make the the pop sound, but uh, apparently we we didn't get it on this one. All right, well, drink that one real quick and go get another one. Come on, man. We have a standard. 
unfortunately this is the last beer or the last beer i have in a bottle here at the house i mainly get all my stuff in cans with the with the boys being uh boys i I don't like having as much glasses uh try to have as little glass as possible you're wise beyond your years yeah rolling the dice uh, uh, you have a you have a shout or uh gear talk question I've or- a gear talk um as those that have been following the podcast know, I've been experimenting with the, the metal cutting blades, uh, circular saw metal cutting blades. I've been using it in a table saw with a 10-inch blade and been playing with effectiveness in cutting uh, G10 and micarta because that was just absolutely destroying wood cutting blades. And I've been back and forth between the ferrous and the non-ferrous, and maybe we can ask our guest maybe we'll save that for later as to what the difference is, but I have a final call that the non-ferrous metal cutting blades work best for cutting G10 and micarta. Nice. I'm getting a minimum of six weeks, some case three months worth of life out of a 10 inch 80 tooth circular saw blade in my cabinet saw. Okay. And I cut, I cut a, load of G10 in my card. I usually get it in 12 by 12s or two by 12s and then rip that down to scale sizes. Yep. So I, I cut a lot of both. Uh, now when I cut um, stabilized wood or wood, I'll switch back out to a wood cutting blade because it gives me a little cleaner, a lot less heat uh, cut. But for G10 and my card, the non-ferrous metal cutting blade outperforms the ferrous metal cutting blade. Nice. Uh, don't know the science behind it, but you can get the thin kerf non-ferrous metal cutting blades on Amazon for 20, 30 bucks a shot. And three or four of those will last me a year. Nice. Yeah, that sure beats some of the, the $80, $80 wood cutting ones. Oh man, early on it broke my heart because I'd spend, like you said, 80 bucks on a really nice finished cut blade and it would last two weeks. Yep. And it has gotten really hard to find guys that'll sharpen those blades. And it broke my heart to just have a stack of of dulled $80 blades. Yep. Cool. Now I think, uh, I think I can turn them into some pretty cool post-apocalyptic armor maybe. Yeah, that could be cool. Yeah, kind of a Mad Max kind of shoulder pads thing. Yeah. Yeah, that might be my new outfit for Blade this year. No kilt? Oh, no, no it'll be with a kilt. <laughs> Kid me, man, as hot as it gets at the in, at Blade Show, I got to have the kilt. All right. So uh, we, we actually have some stuff to talk about with Blade Show. You want to introduce our guests so we can, we can talk about Blade Show a little bit more? Well, you want to talk about Blade Show first, or talk about our guest? Well, he's got some. He's got something he uh, he needs to talk about for Blade Show. We'll try to give him a plug because he's uh, oh. he's doing okay. something. Hey, don't, don't give it away. Yeah, I spent fives or tens of minutes working out this introduction. All right, let's hear it. Let's not ruin it tonight. We're going to talk with the Pharaoh Ferris, the Monarch of Martinsite. The Sultan of Steel, the man, the myth, the legend, Laren Thomas. That's right, people. Right here tonight, Laren Thomas. Well, that's me. I'm here. <laughs> hey, good to hear you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Glad to have you back on the podcast again. 
Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and if if you want to know more about Laren's backstory, we did a podcast with him, uh, episode 27. We also talked about a bunch of steel and stuff, uh, went through a lot of terminology and stuff. Um, so definitely check out 27. It was a, a great show. If you want to understand the later parts of this show, you should probably go check out 27. Yeah. So we, we're going to talk about Blade Show. And uh, Laren, you've got uh, something that you're going to be doing at Blade Show. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll be giving one of the classes. Mine is on heat treating. So uh, I forget what I titled that class, but you can look it up on the Blade Show website. And uh, so we'll talk about heat treating, like uh, how do you optimize a heat treatment? Specialized heat treatment methods, should you use them? Are they they worth the extra time or the the weird processing, uh, that kind of stuff? So I'm really excited to go to Blade Show. I've been two or three times, but I haven't been in at least 15 years. So I am very excited to go to Blade Show again. Well, I don't know what it was like 15 years ago. Dan might be able to talk about that more, but... The knife makers there might be dead now. I'm yeah, not sure. It could be. Why y'all got to come at me with the age jokes, man? I, I, I think the first time I was there was like eight, eight or nine years ago. It was when Dan was still an apprentice at Fiddleback. And uh, yeah, it's changed a ton since that few years ago. Oh, it's exponential growth. Yeah, I pulled up the, the Blade Show website. It says how to take your heat treat to the next level. And it's from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m on saturday june 6th yeah it'll be the best class there i don't know about that so i'll be teaching i'll be teaching a class there also on saturday uh quite a bit earlier so uh i'm gonna probably not be able to stay down in the pit on friday night nearly as long because i've got a class from 8 30 to 9 30 saturday morning on how to do some custom file work so i'll be talking about the the five kind of major Biowork patterns I do, the thorn, the bubbles, the Celtic, the uh, bats, and... Um, thorns? I said thorns. Uh, oh. One other one. So we'll, we'll, be, we'll be talking about how I do it. I'll go step by step. I'll have some props and stuff uh, for that. And then I'm planning on bringing a bunch of files and a bunch of offcut of steel and maybe some brass pieces so that people can actually mark out and do some with... Uh, some of the files and stuff so you can actually take that home and use it as a guide for uh, doing some stuff on your own knives pretty excited about doing that yeah it'll be the second best class <laughs> yeah. wow you, you you're just going to piss off the guy that does the editing <laughs> not the direction i would take but let's see how it turns out Cotton. <laughs> uh, and then uh, uh dan will also have a booth there want to tell him your booth number or you want me to say it no, no, no. Beth made me write it on the back of my hand. It, it, it's number 537. Nice. I don't have a class, but I got a booth. Very cool. And you can find me at table three double B. Uh, so I'm pretty close right next to the bathroom. So that's always a, a big plus for that table when I had a, the last blade show. I could keep an eye and see when the line to the bathroom was almost nobody and then run over there real quick and then get back to my table real quick. That's key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll be right right next to uh, the Phoenix Abrasive uh, table. I believe they're still going to be at 3AA uh, right next to me. So make sure to check those guys out. They were on the last podcast. All right. So we, we did the, the get to know you part of, uh, of the podcast in episode 27. So I feel like we can skip that. We, 
we don't need to hear about uh, your childhood or where you grew up or your first knife. But do we do we really need to go over vocab terms, uh, Kyle, or should we just make them make them go back and look? Um, yeah, I mean, they could either listen to that one or back uh, way back with Jared uh, in one of our first podcasts. So I guess just to to give you the quick the quick version, Laren is PhD in metallurgy. Literally grew up in the knife community. Uh, is the brains behind uh, knife steel nerds. Is one of the few people that can perform the Catra Carta. I never know how to pronounce it. Yeah, Catra Catra testing, and more importantly, I think is one of the very few people that actually publishes results. Mm-hmm. So just for those of you that were too lazy to go back and listen to episode 27, the man knows what the hell he's talking about. Yep. And don't forget my book. We got to plug that. Oh, oh. <laughs> and we plugged the hell out of that thing too. <laughs> yeah. I got, I, uh, I got mine like the day you uh, sent it out on Patreon that it was out on Amazon. And then the, then the price went down by like $5, like, three weeks later. So everybody got a better Yeah, deal. That was not my fault. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. You know what? It was worth it for me. I read kind of slow. So it was worth it for me to get the three weeks head start. Yeah. <laughs> and I might completely fanboy out if you're going to be at blade show this year and get it autographed. Yep. Oh, I can't wait. I'll be, I'll be bringing it and I'm going to, I'm going to bring the, uh, knife magazine with the, uh, the Kephart too. Mm. get it signed by, by the oh. man, the man, Dan. All right. Well, thank you. No, that's <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, this weekend I was talking to Scott Grossman and a couple other knife makers and your book came up. A couple of the young guys asked one or two questions and Scott's like, well, do you have the book? Um, I, I really cannot tell you how much, how much I appreciate the perspective you took. I love the focus that you put on right out of the gate on blade geometry. Mm-hmm. And even if someone's just a jackass and wants to ignore everything, the heat treat information in the back of it is worth the book's weight in gold. Yeah, I called it knife engineering to try to separate it from just being a heat treating or just a steel book in people's minds. That doesn't always work. Some of the Amazon reviews say, you know, buy this book for the steel and heat treating. And that's certainly in there. But a lot of people want to focus on steel or even heat treating. It's popular to say, you know, oh, it's all about the heat treat. If you have a bad heat treat on a on a good steel, then it's a bad knife. And uh, that is true. But the the edge geometry is the most important part. And uh, this is a mistake knife makers make from way back in the day, just having edges that are too heavy for the task at hand. And they just won't cut well. I don't care how good the steel is or your heat treatment is. It's not going to cut well and it's not going to cut very long. So the the edge geometry is the most important parameter in your your knife performance. So, yeah, that's why I call it knife engineering, because we're engineering the whole knife. We're not just trying to to find the secret special heat treatment to make it 10 percent better than than the other guy. Very cool. Yeah, I can appreciate I can appreciate that. When I came to knife making, I actually was not in the industry. I took a roundabout way to get into the making. An engineering student before I was a knife maker. And I figured the Greeks had figured out everything you needed to know about angles. And in my shop, 
as an apprentice, I was grinding thin and high because the math said that cuts better. And when my mentor saw what I was doing, he was like, what are you doing? And I had to lay out. Well, I didn't have to lay out the math. He was an engineer as well. But I got a little bit of a, you're mathematically correct, but but people don't understand that. All they want to hear about is the steel. Hmm. And it was a, a little bit of a defining moment for me. But I love that you make it, like you said, it's about the engineering. It's not one part of it. It's the whole the whole piece that goes into the blade. The blade geometry, the heat treat. Sorry, I'm starting to fanboy out on a I think he appreciates it. Well, and it, I mean, we don't need to just spend the whole podcast praising me as much as I enjoy it. But um, I mean, the the steel is a big marketing point. You know, you see in folders right now, the hot steel is is M390, it seems to be. And so if it's in M390, then it's already perceived as being of higher value. And so, you know, I don't write about marketing at all, but sometimes it might even work for knife sales to pick a steel that is slightly less optimal, that is more recognized than trying to push something that your customer hasn't heard of. So I I don't like to say that because, you know, I'm all about engineering the best knife that you can. But uh, it is one thing to keep in mind. And so when a steel develops a really good reputation, people want to buy knives in that steel. And when it has a poor reputation, then you're really fighting an uphill battle. You know, like uh, 420 stainless, uh, a good quality one might be uh, a good choice for a really large knife, like a big chopper or maybe a sword or something, especially if it's purely ornamental. But the, the steel has very high toughness and very good corrosion resistance. But people see 420 and they see cheap knife. So, you know, how are you supposed to convince anyone to buy that? Somewhat like 440C, I think, which was a decent culinary steel, but it got a bad reputation. Yeah. Well, I used 154CM and everybody used to love that one. And it's kind of fallen out of favor, not not because it got a bad reputation, but just people seem to think of it as lesser um, than what it is. Well, it's not the newest, shiniest. Yeah. And I've been I've been reading the the book how to make money making knives uh from murray carter and he was actually talking about trying to concentrate on just a few steels and he said in in his view um, a maker that uses 20 or 30 different steels hasn't figured out the nuances for for each one to optimize them it's like stephen fowler he bought i think he bought three or four hundred pounds of i think it was w2 and his he gets his W2 blades to do things that I just would not expect from that steel. But he'll tell you up front when, when I finish with this batch of steel, I'm going to have to completely redo my heat treat. I've dialed my heat treat in perfectly for this one very narrow batch of steel. And I'm getting the absolute maximum out of it. But even if I buy another batch of W2, there's going to be just, slight differences that that I'm going to have to relearn my heat treat on. Yep. Well, and I've heard tales of Bob Dozier uh, testing new D2 with his heat treating uh, parameters. And if it doesn't uh, reach the same result, he just sends it back. Huh. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but with the traditional ways of making steel, the, the steel at the top of the crucible, the steel at the bottom, 
and the steel at the middle is going to have a slightly different makeup. So you can get sheets all from the, the same crucible, but the makeup is going to be slightly different. Yeah, there can be some variation within a heat. Uh, it's not always just top, bottom, middle. Uh, you know, there's also the the direction that steel solidifies. So if you're if you're on the outside of an ingot in contact with the walls, then that's usually where your solidification begins. And then it travels towards the center. So on the the surface, it usually cools down more quickly. So that can lead to some uh, deviations. Also, through thickness, uh, certain elements will segregate towards the middle and others will segregate to the surface. So those can create um, deviations. And of course, any, any steel um, will have an acceptable range of elements. So, you know, you look at your your composition on the steel chart and it might say 1.55 carbon, but in actuality, it's going to be 1.5 to 1.6 or 1.45 to 1.65, depending on how tight the steel company keeps it. So, you know, if you end up high on one element and low on another, your heat treating response might be a little bit different or your corrosion resistance might be a little bit different. So it's one thing to to be aware of and if you're getting steel from certain suppliers they'll send you the the measured composition for the heat that you bought and that may give you some clue as to why you know the hardness might be off by half a point from what you had before Uh, before we go too deep down in this rabbit hole um there's probably a couple of vocabulary words we'll touch on just for this podcast if you really if you really want to know what we're talking about you need to go back to episode 27 but Carbide sizes or carbides. For the purpose of this conversation, what are we, what are we talking about when we say carbides? Well, since we're not introducing everything, I don't think I've used the word carbide yet. You uh, have, but, but so I, as I, we I, go I, along, I'll do my best to define things to keep everybody up to speed, and not just say go read my book or go listen to another podcast or go whoa, read all hey, of Knife Steel Nerds. Dude, but, dude, dude, we need for them to go back and listen to as many <laughs> podcasts as we can. But let's let's define carbide, then we'll get into some other stuff and we'll define things as we go along. But uh, a a carbide is is a hard particle. It's made of carbon and another element. So in a simple carbon steel like 1095, which is just iron and 0.95 percent carbon, a little bit of manganese and silicon, it's going to form an iron carbide, also called cementite. So iron and carbon, they form together and they make a hard particle in the steel. Those hard particles, they add to wear resistance because they're harder than the surrounding steel. So it's kind of like having a brick and mortar. You know, the the brick provides resistance to wear. Uh, So you have more carbide, then you have more wear resistance. Typically, it reduces your toughness or resistance to chipping or breaking. Uh, So uh, a steel like uh, CPM15V, it's got 15% 15% vanadium in it. It forms this very hard vanadium carbide. It adds a lot to wear resistance, um, but its toughness is not as high as a steel like 8670 or Z-Tough or CPM1V. Um, you can go look those up if you don't know them. They're they're basically just steels with a low amount of carbide, and uh, so they have very high toughness, very good resistance to chipping and breaking, but then they have lower wear resistance than some other available steels. Um, and for toughness, for the purpose of this conversation, would you say toughness is basically the property of bending and not breaking? Yeah, I wouldn't. 
that's not my favorite way to talk about toughness. I usually just say resistance to breaking or chipping. Uh, you know, if if it toughness is best with impacts, but it, it does get complicated. You can do certain bending tests that are related to toughness, but I think uh, I, I always thought of toughness as your ability to deform and return to your original shape. Yeah, that would be more about strength, actually, or hardness. Oh, okay. So if if you have an annealed piece of steel and you can bend it 90 degrees and it'll stay bent, you know, mostly to the degree that you bent it to. Uh, But if you have a harder piece of steel, you know, one that's 50 or 60 Rockwell, you can bend it to a pretty significant degree. And when you let go, it'll go back straight uh, because you did not exceed its yield strength. Now, if you've got a 70 Rockwell piece of steel with a lot of carbide in it, it's not very tough. Um, If you exceed its yield strength, it'll just snap uh, because it's so brittle. Uh, But lots of guys make fillet knives that are 60 Rockwell. Uh, That's a hardness value, a measure of strength. Uh, And you can bend those fillet knives 90 degrees. And part of the reason why is because they're so thin. The thinner the steel is, the lower the stress is at the surface when you bend it. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's all these uh, complicating factors that go in together. Again, this is why we talk about engineering the whole knife and not just about heat treating or hardness, because a lot of guys look at a fillet knife and they're like, I'm going to be bending this thing 90 degrees to demonstrate its flexibility. I cannot have it snapping. So I'm going to dial back the hardness. Uh, but you might end up uh, bending it and it not coming back straight. And you can try to push that to the customer saying, well, look, it's it's very tough. It You know, you can bend it back. But if you give a little more hardness, then it, it's not going to deform. It'll come back straight. Things like coming back straight and taking a keen edge are important. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a, another good point is some some knife makers are afraid of hardness because they say, oh, I need my customers to be able to sharpen this. They say 58 Rockwell, it's easier to sharpen than 60 Rockwell. Uh, but there's more to sharpening than just how difficult it is to remove material. And also wear resistance is controlled a lot more by the steel than the hardness. So a a 62 Rockwell 1095 with a relatively small amount of iron carbide, uh, it's just not very wear resistant. Even at high hardness, you can remove material pretty easily. Uh, If you don't have the skill to remove material, then it's not really the fault of the the knife. You just need more practice sharpening. Going 58 is not going to help that much to an inexperienced sharpener. Uh, but on the other hand, a higher hardness, it usually takes a keen edge a little bit better. Um, deburring is usually easier. And a lot of times just getting a, a clean burr off of an edge is more difficult than removing material. Hmm. Very cool. So you've got a new steel coming out. Well, not coming out. It is out. Magna Cut. Mm-hmm. Um, as people have probably figured out from the, the name of this podcast, that's really what I want to pick your brain about tonight. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so l- I guess let's start with what what's the genesis of the idea? It, what brought you to the point of going, there's a lot of steels out there, but it's not, none of them are the right one. What's What brought you to this? Yeah, well, I'll try to give the short version of the story, but uh, really what sparked my interest in in knives and steel from the beginning was Crucible Steel coming out with new products in the early, mid-2000s. So Crucible was a, a pioneer in tool steel. You know, they they came out with the first powder metallurgy tool steel facility 
Uh, they've developed steels like CPM-10V, CPM-S90V, uh, S60V. And uh, those steels weren't making a lot of inroad with knife makers. The knife makers were used to steels that were pretty easy to work with. 154CM and 440C, those were really high wear-resistant steels to them. And uh, moving on to 10V, which has 10% vanadium in it, a lot of hard carbides, it's extremely difficult to grind and to finish comparatively. They, they just had little interest in using those steels. So uh, Crucible developed S30V as a, a little bit lower wear-resistant steel that was a little bit easier to work with. Uh, they work closely with Chris Reeve knives uh, specifically and also a couple other knife companies. So they release S30V and they advertise it as, as a steel that's made just for knives. We listened to knife makers and knife companies and we made a product just for you. And when I was going to knife shows in my teens with my dad, I'm talking to, to knife makers and they're telling me about their special steels and special heat treatments. So I'm very interested in all of that. I'm talking to my dad about it, who's also a nerd about these kind of things. <laughs> and so I go to the Crucible booth and I talk to the Crucible metallurgist. I call them up on the phone and I pester them with questions. Um, I'm reading the book by Dr. John Verhoeven about metallurgy for knife makers. Uh, and I'm just loving all of that stuff. Damn kid that's asking me uncomfortable questions that I don't know the answers to. <laughs> I'm sure they, you know, they knew a lot of answers. They were metallurgists. Some things they wouldn't know, you know, like, oh, which is tougher, 154CM or S30V or, you know, whatever. And, and you know, they may not have hard numbers for every single question I'm asking. Uh, but so I was very intrigued by all of that you know, developing a steel just for knives and and making a new product that's better. And a, a lot of those uh, elements that were so exciting to me is what led me to become a metallurgist. And so even though I work in the broader steel industry, I develop automotive sheet steels that are completely different than tool steels and, and stainless steels for knives. But I still love knives. I started Knife Steel Nerds. I wrote the book. I did all of that because I, I love all that stuff. So, but I'm writing all these articles about the history of knife steels and and really digging into the metallurgy behind them. Like, what were the new things these metallurgists were discussing and discovering? Uh, what, like, breakthroughs were they making? You know, what led to CPM-10V? How were they developing it? And uh, so I knew some of that background, but I was digging in a lot deeper than I was before when I'm writing these articles. So I'm looking at all these trends from previous knife steels. Like S30V was a really big release. It was kind of a, a turning point in knife steel sales, especially from Crucible. And, and S90V was also another big one. And one of the things they did with S90V and S30V is they dialed back the chromium content from previous stainless steels. So, of course, in a stainless steel, you need chromium because that's what forms your, your chromium oxide layer at the surface and provides you resistance to rusting and other forms of corrosion. So uh, you need chromium. And the, the most popular stainless steel up until the, the 80s, 90s, 2000s was 440C. It had 17% chromium and high carbon to go with it. The chromium carbides were, were relatively large, and that prevented you from getting a fine edge. Yeah, there, there are improvements you can make on 4-4-2-C, for sure. The powder metallurgy process helped with that. Uh, so they, uh, they dialed back the chromium content on S90V and then later S30V. And they found they could maintain a similar corrosion resistance by also dialing back the carbon a little bit. And uh, it would also make their vanadium go further. So when you have a high percentage of chromium, it competes with vanadium to form carbides. 
So with CPM-10V, it's a non-stainless with relatively low chromium. You got 10% vanadium, and all of that vanadium goes toward making those really hard vanadium carbides. And when you have hard, only hard vanadium carbide, you maximize your, your properties. Because if you have softer carbides like a chrome carbide or an iron carbide, then you're reducing toughness by having more carbide and getting less wear resistance from it. So you can maximize your wear resistance and toughness by having the hardest carbides you can, you can get and keeping them small. So CPM-10V did that, but stainless steels like the early S60V, M390, LMAX, those are all early stainless powder metallurgy steels. Uh, they had high chromium, and so with the competition between chromium and vanadium, you get a large amount of chromium carbide, which are also larger in a powder metallurgy steel than vanadium carbides because they're not as stable, and so they grow more just with heat. Uh, so with S90V, they dialed back the chromium, and they were able to get more vanadium carbide for their amount of vanadium. And it, it improved the balance of properties, more toughness and, and wear resistance together. So that was S90V. They did something similar with S30V, just with less vanadium and less carbon, so that it's not as wear resistant. It's a little tougher and easier to work with. So I'm trying not to get in the weeds too much. No, no, you're, so, you're good. So I, I'm, I'm looking at all of this. I mean, I've known, I've known this for a long time. But uh, I'm like, well, if they reduce the chromium and they got better properties, why can't we just reduce the chromium even further? Uh, now, to, to metallurgists in, in the past, they've never done this, I'm sure, because uh, when you look at stainless steels, they almost always have at least 13% chromium in them. Uh, however, with these stainless tool steels, uh, a significant amount of that chromium doesn't go towards stain resistance. It makes chromium carbides. And so instead of having 13 plus percent chromium in solution to add to your corrosion resistance, you end up with around 10, 11, 12 percent. And that's very common for these steels. S30V, it's like 10 to 10 and a half. S35VN is about the same. Uh, M390 is on the high end. It's like 12 and a half, 13. Uh, but you don't need. 20% chromium because you only end up with 10 to 13% in solution. So I said, let's drop the chromium even less. Let's have just enough to put it in solution. You know, let's match like S35VN or so with the amount of chrome in solution, balance it with the right amount of carbon so that when we heat treat it, we dissolve all those chromium carbides. We only have the hard vanadium and niobium carbides left so that the properties are the same as the best non-stainless tool steels. Uh, and the, the ones that I was targeting were CPM4V and CPM Crewwear, because to me, those had the best balance of properties. They have really high toughness and uh, quite high edge retention slash wear resistance together. They have a very fine carbide structure. And so I thought that if I kept the chromium content low, just the right amount to be in solution and no more, uh, then balance everything else, then I could have the properties of a non-stainless steel but with stainless levels of corrosion resistance. Right. And when they go into solution, they're, they're not forming the carbides? Right. So we, if we heat up the steel uh, in the annealed form, when it's soft, there, there is some amount of chromium carbide. But when you do your final heat treatment, you heat it up hot, you know, like 2,000, 2,050 degrees, and all of that chromium carbide dissolves. So the chromium is now freely floating within the iron matrix. And uh, so then at the surface, it's able to form with oxygen. So if it's in the form of a carbide, it's already formed a compound with carbon. So it's not free. If you think back to your chemistry days, it's not free to form with oxygen at the surface. 
would it work as a, a layman's analogy going back to, to salt and water for solution? Mm-hmm. Um, you have a point where you've got saturation. All the salt that is going to dissolve is in the solution. What's mm-hmm. left over, the granules that be at the bottom of the gra- glass, that's the carbides. Right. So if you if you add a little bit of salt and you stir it in, then it all goes into solution. It breaks up into Na and Cl. Uh, if you keep adding more, eventually you have salt particles that precipitate out or never dissolve in. The same thing happens with carbon. We we add carbon and initially it goes into solution. We add more and it starts to form carbides. They start to precipitate out in the steel. If we heat up the steel, more of it dissolves and goes in. It's also the same with salt and water. If you heat up water, you can get more salt to dissolve into it. And and you were going for that that perfect balance point of absolute uh, so, uh, it's completely dissolved with nothing left over. Right. All the chromium carbide is dissolved, and we have the right amount where it is stainless uh, without adding too much where we start to get chromium carbide precipitating out. Uh, another negative of those chromium carbides is that they they reduce your corrosion resistance because when there's a carbide present, then it it soaked up the chromium around it. And so there's these little lean regions of chromium right around the carbides. So they create areas of, of attack for corrosion to occur. Hmm. So even though the chromium in solution for MagnaCut is around the S35VN, S45VN range, it actually had superior corrosion resistance to either of those because it has no chromium carbide present after you heat treat it. All right. We've gotten a little bit technical, mm-hmm. which I was planning on doing later in the episode. So I want to come back to that. Well, let's go. Let's go higher level then. MagnaCut. It's a new steel. It's stainless. It's got better toughness than any of the other stainless powder metallurgy steels. So resistance to cracking and breaking. It's better than S35VN. It's better than S45VN. It's better than Vanex. It's better than LMAX. It's better than M390. It's better than all of them, significantly. Uh, you know, twice or more the toughness of a bunch of those I just lifted off, at least 50, 60% better than the best previous steels, which were S35VN, CPM154, and Vanex. So the big improvement is toughness. And, and I am a solid, drank the Kool-Aid, buy all the S35VN I can get kind of guy, so... Yeah, throw it all away. We're replacing it. <laughs> I will as soon as I get my shipment in. <laughs> um, I would like to dive back in again because I'm fascinated. But just a couple other things on the higher level that I'm a little curious about. Mm-hmm. So you had the concept. What's the R&D process? Like, how do you how do you go from, OK, I'm going to make a better steel to okay, we're now heating thousands of pounds of, of alloy. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have a lot of things involved and I'm try, I'll try to give it in some kind of linear order. I, I mean, yeah. so w- when you're making a new product for a customer, you want to make something that they want. And you can determine that in a lot of different ways. You know, you can go the route of the customer doesn't know what he wants until I give it to him. You can also, <laughs> also pull the customer you know, what is it that, that you want? You know, sometimes that isn't very useful. You might go to the customer and he says, well, I want it to have a little bit better edge retention and to be a little tougher and to have better corrosion resistance and to get a little harder. Can you do all that for me? And the answer might be, no, I, I can't give you that. Or the customer thinks like, oh, edge retention, that's the hot thing. Customers want edge retention. Just give me a little more edge retention. That'll be fine. Uh, 
another way is just to be very uh, aware of the market, all the different product combinations that are out there, what properties they offer, and to see where the hole is. You know, where where is the gap in these available products? And uh, so the big gap to me is between the stainless steels and the non-stainless steels in the powder metallurgy group, where the powder metallurgy stainless steels are like half the toughness, sometimes worse than the the best non-stainless version. Uh, so if you plot out your toughness versus edge retention on a map, you know, your your higher edge retention steels, they have lower toughness. Uh, but for the same level of edge retention, your stainless steel has much poorer toughness. So I'm looking at all of this and a lot of these powder metallurgy stainless steels at the upper end of edge retention and they have bad toughness to go with it. And so the question is, can we offer the high toughness of the non-stainless steels that is missing in the market? So th- that's what leads to me to look at, you know, let's get rid of those chromium carbides and match the, the structure that we have in the non-stainless versions. Is that possible to do? Um, no one's ever done it before. Why would I think I can do it? I develop steels for the automotive industry. So these these dudes have been working on this for over 100 years. Surely they would have thought of this by now. Because sometimes uh, you've got to come from outside the industry. Sometimes maybe they're just focused on other things. Stainless steels are not not the hot product category. They don't have huge volumes. So, you know, maybe maybe there are smart dudes that could have done it. And their bosses said, no, thanks. You know, go make another non-stainless for us. So I, I, I can't just uh, call myself a genius like I thought of things others didn't. But you know, Sometimes it's also nobody told you you couldn't, so you didn't know you couldn't, so you did it. Maybe. And now I, mm-hmm. I, I also benefited a lot from all of these experiments I've been doing for Knife Steel Nerds and, and the book Knife Engineering. Uh, I, I heat treated tons of steels. You mentioned the, the back of the book and Knife Engineering was worth it all by itself. I have hardness curves for so many steels. I, I'm sure I've heat treated more steels than anyone else outside of a heat treating facility. And so I, I plotted out hardness versus austenitizing temperature versus tempering temperature for a whole bunch of steels. So I have all this data. I have toughness data for a whole range of steels. I looked at the microstructure of all of those steels to correlate with toughness. You know, what, what are the structures that are giving the best toughness? I did catra edge retention experiments for, you know, 50 steels or something. And so I can I can plot out versus their their microstructure, which ones have the highest edge retention. Uh, I did a bunch of corrosion resistance experiments. So I, I know what what the characteristics are of all these different steels that give them their different properties. And so I can model all of that. Uh, there's also software packages like a big one is called Thermocalc, where you can punch in a composition and it will tell you the microstructure and the alloy and solution like carbon or chromium. So that that will be there at different temperatures. So you could model this. You weren't in your basement with a little mini kiln doing heats of steel. I would have loved to do it that way. Uh, Crucible had a bankruptcy in 2009. Before then, they had a research facility where they could make, you know, 50 pounds or 300 pounds uh, of powder metallurgy steel. And so they could make five to 10 different variations on a composition they want to try and see which one works the best. Uh, I did not have that luxury because I I went to Crucible Steel. They don't have those small facilities anymore. They can make 3,500 pounds or 5,000 pounds or nothing. So uh, you can only do so many 5,000 pound heats of powder metallurgy steel before you're wasting a lot of money. So uh, w- without being able to model a lot of stuff, this was just never going to happen. So, so you modeled it out on the computer and then 
got as close as you could and said, F it, let's do it live. Yeah, basically. I mean, I agonized over it for months. Like, how much carbon should be in this? Is this carbon too much? The the metallurgist at Crucible, he's emailing me like, eh, I don't know about this carbon amount. It's not going to be enough. The steel's not going to harden. And I'm like, it, it's got to. It's it's going to. You know, <laughs> so, I was born yeah. to do this, dude. You just gotta <laughs> and, you know, but when when another experienced person is telling you like, I don't know, you know, you're you're putting this through your models. I don't know if these models are right. You know, I, I've got this other model and it says that you're off. And, you know, you start to think like, well, maybe I am off. I mean, you're, you're thinking about this for months. You get one shot at it. You're like, maybe I just need to go a little higher carbon. I'm, I'm going to go a little more conservative. Maybe I'll have some chromium carbide in there, but I know it'll get to 62 Rockwell. Uh, y- you know, it, it's easy to question yourself when you're you're so emotionally invested in one project. And it's not like you just did it a week after you decided to do it. No, you're agonizing over for months and you're calling Crucible like, hey, when are you going to melt this? And they're like, oh, yeah, next month. And then a month goes by and then they say, yeah, it'll be next month. And you're just like, ah, I can't I can't handle this anymore. Like, is it going to work? Well, that, um, I, I assume that's where some of the compromises come in, too, that you can't test it on 50 pounds. You've got to commit to thousands of pounds. Yeah. And that pressure to not be wrong. A lot of people will they'll back off and rather than get 20 percent improvement, they'll take 5 percent improvement just to know they're safe. Yeah. And, and remember, I'm coming to Crucible uh, saying like, hey, I've never developed a, a knife steel before, but uh, I've got this really great idea and I think it'll work. You know, if my design doesn't work, you know, we we make the steel and uh, we try to harden it and it doesn't get over 56 Rockwell. They'll say, well, thanks, buddy. You gave it a good shot. Uh, good luck in life, you know, and, and I'm done. We're going to so, make some nice boat anchors and don't ever call us again. Yeah. Th- you know, they're not going to try again. So I'm. I mean, you you didn't know what you were doing. Sorry, buddy. You know, we we invested in you. We gave you a good chance. And uh, you really sorry. did go all in, didn't you? Yeah, I I did. You know, I I had to go straight to them. I had to talk like I knew what I was talking about and say this is going to work. You know? <laughs> so, and I believed it would. You know, I I had all of my data. Um, you know, a mixture of my own models based on all of the testing that I did. And then the modeling of, of software to help me get close to what I wanted. Um, and so, you know, I had some confidence, but, you know, I'm 90% confidence. There's a good 10% chance that something unexpected is going to happen. Or I'm modeling something with too many elements and the software, you know, is spitting out something funky that's not realistic. And then it doesn't work. In my head, I, I get just, this this image of you in front of a bunch of guys in suits. And they're, they're, they start off by asking you twi- trick questions to see if you really know what you're talking about. Yeah, and that definitely happened. So the the head metallurgist of Crucible, we've worked well together since, but he's definitely asking me questions, you know, like, well, when we melt steel, like we have these limitations and and what do we do about those, you, you know, or other simple questions about steel production or things where he's trying to trip me up with, with something that sounds like it should be one way, but if you know how it actually works, it's not. Uh, I, I can't explain it better than that, but you know, he's asking me questions to see if I do know what I'm talking about. And if I had answered those questions wrong, also they would not have, have uh, taken a chance on me. I, I get this image like in my cousin Vinny where they're like, so what's the, the firing sequence on a 327, 1955 Bel Air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it, he was asking me questions and I could tell he was probing me, you know, like, 
you know, if you can't answer these questions right, we know you're just a, a knife steel fanboy. And we'll just go back to doing our own thing. You know, we don't need you. <laughs> so obviously, you, you pass not only the first rounds, but the last rounds. Mm-hmm. And, and you get to the point where they're doing your heat and they call you at like three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. How hard did your heart seize up when you looked at caller ID at three in the morning? <laughs> yeah, I, I was excited. I, I knew it should be coming soon. But also, we'd been delayed a month here and a month there and a month there for months and months and months. So uh, you know, you don't know when it's going to happen. You know, we, we ran into COVID and everything, just yeah. every delay that could happen happened. I, can, I have, I have to imagine the, the steel processing industry has tons of stuff. I, I work in an engineering facility and we've had tons of delays with suppliers and everything. So yeah, just everything's affected. Mm. So, and, and an R and D product, if you work in R and D, you know, that when, a facility has a choice between production to sell or research and development that's not going to sell. They're going to keep making steel that sells. And if they're going to be producing a bunch of steel and having your R&D project at the end of the line and uh, they're hitting the wire, they'll say, sorry, buddy, you'll have to make it on to the next round. You know, and, and so if you're in the middle of a pandemic and you're slow on production, uh, then things get pushed. So anyway, we finally get to melting the steel. I get called early in the morning and he's saying, hey, we're making your steel. The the liquid steel is looking real mushy, meaning uh, parts of it are starting to solidify. And if you have solid steel, uh, you can't you can't make powder metallurgy steel because you have to to drop the liquid steel through a nozzle, which is then sprayed with a gas spray. And uh, solid steel can't travel through a small hole in a nozzle. This <laughs> is a bitch that way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, even if you could get it through the nozzle, you wouldn't want it to because it's already solidified and that microstructure is all big, which is not what you wanted from your powder metallurgy. You're trying to instantly solidify it with that gas spray. Uh, and so I'm panicking you know, early in the morning and he's asking if he can add more carbon because, again, he ran his equations. He thought it needed more carbon uh, and, and carbon can reduce your melting point. Uh, th- this is how cast iron works. It has very high carbon because it melts. So it melts at a low temperature. And, and he's going to teach this kid a lesson. <laughs> I mean, he he was being nice about it, but he's saying, look, it's mushy. Uh, we got to get this steel out of here, yeah. you know. And uh, so do I have your permission to add more carbon? Uh, so I asked him, like, well, what have you added already? And he, he listed off some elements. And I'm like, OK, the, the other elements should bring down the, the melting temperature. Let's let's see what happens. Let me run some numbers on the software, see like how much extra carbon I can get away with while still having something in the ballpark of what I wanted. So I'm running all these numbers, you know, early in the morning. I'm like, okay, if I could, if we add like 0.1%, it still should mostly do what it was supposed to do. The chromium carbide will dissolve at a higher temperature, but it'll still kind of be like what I wanted. So I call him and I'm like, all right, you can add 0.1%. And he says, nope, nope, it's all good now. It's all liquid. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, because I didn't need that half of my stomach liner that just got eaten up by ulcers. Yeah, I'm like, well, hopefully this 0.1% will still work. <laughs> you know, may, hopefully it'll, you know, the chromium carbide won't get too much. Maybe it'll still function kind of. And, you know, I, I was just preparing for the worst. So uh, in the end, they, they melted the steel. Uh, also, it's the first time you're making a steel. So... Uh, when you're adding elements, some of them will burn out and uh, you don't really know the proportion that'll burn out until you've made this steel a hundred times. Uh, so this is their first shot at it. They could end up wildly off 
And who knows how how close it'll behave to to what the actual design was. Uh, so that's another concern. You can model it one way, and then a little bit more or less evaporates, and it changes your your ratios. Yeah, exactly. So that's a big concern. Uh, they managed to hit the target dead on, though. Almost everything was exact. On the first so, run. Uh, so credit to Crucible. Uh, they know what they're doing, and they they hit my composition. So uh, that was very exciting. And then I knew, okay, if the steel doesn't work, it's my fault. It's nobody's fault but mine. So, yeah, it's good and bad. So it hit the ratios you're looking for. It's the steel you want. What are the properties? What What does it actually do now? Yeah, so the, the carbide structure, those carbides we were talking about, uh, it, it is finer than most any other powder metallurgy stainless. The only one that comes close is Vanex, uh, which has a, a little bit different structure because it has high nitrogen content. And it, uh, it being finer means it takes a keener edge, a, a, a finer, sharper edge. Yeah, it, it might. Uh, sometimes, you know, medium coarse carbides can can still lead to pretty fine edges. Uh, but carbide structure can make sharpening and grinding easier. Uh, it improves toughness usually. So those are the the key points. And and usually you want a finer microstructure. Usually that's the goal. Only in certain circumstances might you want larger carbides. So, but that was a major goal. Get the carbide structure finer than any of those other steels. So and it's significantly finer than S30V or S90V or LMAX or M390. Uh, it's even a little bit finer than the non-stainless steels I was I was targeting. So CPM4V and and Z-Wear, CPM Crewwear, they're a little bit coarser structure than this new steel. So I even was able to improve on on those steels in certain ways. So the structure is finer. The toughness matches CPM4V and Venetis 4 Extra. It's uh, significantly better than the powder metallurgy stainless steels like S35VN and M390. Uh, the corrosion resistance is better than M390. It's uh, just under those stellar corrosion-resistant steels like H1 and LC200N and Vanex. So uh, it can handle light use around saltwater. I wouldn't make a saltwater diving knife out of it, but it has corrosion resistance good enough for almost anything. But for cooling area uses, it's going to be phenomenal. Yeah, for 99% of all knife applications, it has very good corrosion resistance, better than a lot of current stainless steels, despite it having pretty low chromium content. And uh, I'm st- still getting comments from guys saying that it must be a semi-stainless steel based on the chrome <laughs> content. Look, I got models. I can prove this. Well, and it's not just models. I mean, I I heat treated a bunch of steel coupons. I finished them all the 400 grade and I sprayed them with salt water and I saw which ones like rusted and which ones didn't. So, I, I mean, I've got models and I've got tests and, you know, still people will say, oh, well, if, if you did some other test and it would come out bad and, you know, maybe it would, but these are also the yeah. same guys that think you have to align your quench tank with magnetic north. Yeah, some of them, uh, you know, just there, there's always armchair experts out there. They're like, oh, you think it's stainless? You're just a metallurgist who designed it. You don't even know what you're talking about. You're just a Ph.D. that grew up in the knife industry. What the hell do you know? <laughs> Uh, the, the other property about the steel is it, it still gets really good hardness, at least 64 Rockwell. Uh, and I, I did a bunch of heat treating and toughness experiments to dial in the, the recommended heat treatment. I'm really happy with the recommended heat treatment. It leads to about 61 to 63 Rockwell, uh, along with very excellent toughness. Uh, the high strength helps with thin edges and edge retention and everything. Uh, so hardness, corrosion resistance, toughness, edge retention, 
uh, oh, the edge retention is around the range of S35VN and VanX, uh, which is a bit below S30V and M390, uh, but it's a pretty good range. It's identical to CPM4V and CPM Crewware, which are very highly regarded steels right now um, among certain groups. So get that yeah. edge retention and be highly corrosion resistant and high toughness. Yeah, uh, there, there's certain balances in steel design. We were talking about toughness and edge retention. Usually to get one, you have to drop the other. And uh, the holy grail is when we can increase both at the same time. Uh, you know, one one breakthrough was with powder metallurgy technology, where they were able to refine the microstructure and get a higher combination of those properties. Uh, but still, even for a given powder metallurgy steel, if you increase the carbide content and get more edge retention, you're going to lose some toughness. It's just the reality. Yeah. Uh, uh, so this steel has a higher edge retention toughness balance than any of the previously available powder metallurgy stainless steels. So, you know, we moved up and to the right on our chart, which is a very difficult thing to do. You managed uh, to get fuel efficiency and horsepower. Right, exactly. And uh, another balance is hardness corrosion resistance. Uh, so on one end of the spectrum, you have LC200N and Vanex. They get to about 6061 if you're really careful with heat treating them and you use cryo. And they have very high corrosion resistance. They don't really get any harder than that. Uh, and the reasons are maybe uh, take just a few minutes too long to explain for this podcast. On the other end of the spectrum is ZDP-189. It gets to like 68, 69 Rockwell. And it is not a stainless. It's advertised as a stainless even by the steel company. It simply isn't. <laughs> and, and then there are other steels in between. A lot of stainless steels try to hit a, a spot where they have like above average corrosion resistance and can hit around 63, 64 Rockwell at their peak and usually dial them back a little bit. Uh, so with this steel, uh, I got what I call a nine and a half out of 10 on corrosion resistance, and it can hit up to about 65 Rockwell. So the, the hardness corrosion resistance balance is also quite high. Uh, the only steel I've tested that is at a similar point on the plot is S110V. Uh, but it it has so much carbide in it that it boosts up the hardness by like a point or two anyway because of all those hard carbides. Well, so frequently it, you've got to pull pull the hardness back to get corrosion resistance, don't you? Yeah, well, in steel design. So for a given steel, you know, if you if you max out the hardness on Vanex and go for 61 Rockwell, it's also going to have its peak corrosion resistance. You don't need to worry about that with heat treating necessarily. Uh, but with steel design, if you're adding to corrosion resistance, you're probably losing a bit of, of hardness. And I'm speaking a little bit above my head right now, but when, you come, when it comes to heat treat, mm -hmm. I thought I understood that sometimes you have to, when you heat treat, you heat treat a little lower and you wind up with a little less hardness, but that gives you a little more corrosion resistance. Okay, I'll talk about the two main heat treating parameters that affect your corrosion resistance. One is your austenitizing temperature. So the higher the temperature you go, the more carbide you dissolve. You dissolve more chromium carbide, you get more chromium in solution. Uh, then your, your max is where your hardness starts to dip because you're going too high on austenitizing temperatures. You get more and more carbon and chrome in solution. Eventually, your hardness starts to go down because of excess retained austenite. So higher austenitizing temperature usually means higher corrosion resistance. The other one is tempering. If you temper above about 750 degrees Fahrenheit, you start to get into what's called the secondary hardening range where your hardness starts to go back up this is common to temper at like 950 or 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 
And uh, at that point, you precipitate little chromium carbides that are what is helping to increase your hardness. And that also decreases your corrosion resistance. So if you want to max out your your corrosion resistance, you use a high austenitizing temperature and a tempering temperature below 750. Neither of those things necessarily lead to less hardness unless you're over austenitizing where your hardness is dipping down. And I do not recommend doing that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm taking notes. <laughs> you should have saw how many notes Dan was taking in the... Uh talking about abrasives <laughs> look the more stuff i do the more i learn that i don't really know much what was what was what's great is he's must be taking notes on paper instead of trying to type them in the show notes for me to uh, dissect them later yeah well you keep erasing those <laughs> that's what goes into the into the post man <sighs> man making my life hard <laughs> cool well i'm, I'm excited uh, all that all that steel stuff is sounding great. Was it when I said austenitizing, or was it when I said vanadium carbide? Uh, probably vanadium carbide. <laughs> oh, vanadium carbide gave me a stiffy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about it. Uh, can you tell tell the the listeners? Um, I think we're going to be a little uh, after when they can get the the first run of it, but. Uh, when they might be able to find some some of it eventually. Yeah, it goes on sale April 1st from Niagara Specialty Metals. So Crucible makes the steel. Uh, they send it to Niagara Specialty Metals and they hot roll it and anneal it and distribute it. They also will sell it to other distribution companies. Uh, SB Specialty Metals is supposed to get some initial sheets to distribute as well. So uh, all... CPM steels go through this process path. They're made by Crucible. Then they go to Niagara for hot rolling. So it's exactly the same as any of those products. And if you're used to buying steel uh, with a CPM label on it, it's going to be very similar to that in terms of surface finish and anneal and all of that. Uh, so April 1st, Niagara Specialty Metals, it'll be available on their online store. There is a limited supply. You know, we made the one heat of steel and we're going to sell off all of that. Uh, there has been a lot of interest in the steel. Uh, there's not enough to go around, and it's probably going to go quickly. Uh, then they are making 15,000 more pounds at Crucible. Uh, but by the time that gets to Niagara and they have it all fully processed, that's going to be probably about mid-July. So uh, it's going to be a hot commodity. And uh, so I, I feel a little bit bad. Uh, you know, I don't. I almost don't want to advertise this deal too much because... Uh, it's just increasing the run on the steel that's going to occur. <laughs> yeah, my ass may not get enough, and that's a problem for me. Yeah, make sure. Yeah, so ho hopefully people can get some. Make sure they roll a bunch of it in about a hundred and ten thousands. That's uh, three thirty seconds. Yeah, I I don't I don't dictate that. You know, they're the uh, they're the rolling and distribution experts, and you know whatever they think the the popular sizes are, they need to bake. You know, they're in charge of that. So. Once yeah. Is the God is the Lord's thickness. I'm just saying. <laughs> so I, I don't do direct sales. You know, I'm, I'm writing articles on my website all about the steel or one article at least. Yeah, but I'm not calling up Chris Reeve knives and telling them that they need to buy a bunch of my steel. So I, I leave that to the experts. Um, so knife steel nerds, and I've got the coffee cup. Thank you very much. Uh, you've given the heat treat data on that. So I'm not going to ask you to, to give all the information for free. Uh, okay. 
But for those of us that do small batches in the shop and don't send out, uh, is this something? Is this something that can be, you know, a, a traditional electric kiln plate quenched? Uh, is this this going to fall easily in those parameters? Yeah, I I developed the the data sheet for the steel. Uh, I did it by heat treating coupons, and I heat treated the coupons in an even heat furnace, and I plate quenched them between one inch thick aluminum plates. Uh, I did. Uh, liquid nitrogen after I did my freezer after and I did no cold treatment after and all three of those conditions for a few different tempering temperatures are in the data sheet so so the heat treatment was developed for home knife makers there's also a small section of the data sheet which has information uh, for heat treating in a large vacuum furnace uh, so that that information is available to knife companies and to knife heat treating companies that use those bigger furnaces that get a little bit different heat treating response. So the information is there for both. And I have a recommended heat treatment in the data sheet that says, you know, use this temperature and this temperature, and it's going to be golden. Yeah. And you should know. Yeah, I do know. Because I, I, I measured the hardness, I measured the toughness, I measured the, the edge retention, I measured the corrosion resistance. Because I freaking invented the steel. <laughs> I, I don't need to brag that much. Uh, but, you know, there when, when you measure all of the properties of the steel across a, a range of, of heat treating parameters, then you you know how it behaves. So you're, you're very confident in your recommendation. Yeah, that is confidence bred of proven performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has been um, a couple of very lucky knife makers have gotten some test runs on that. Yeah, when we made the initial batch of steel, you know, they sent some to me right away so I could start testing it. And uh, we also selected a small handful of knife makers to send steel to. So we we tried to pick people that had a pre-existing relationship with Niagara Specialty Metals, uh, people that were used to working with high alloy steels. So, you know, uh, bladesmiths that are using a lot of W2 would not not immediately come to mind, you know, with, with testing MagnaCut just because it would be a big jump away from stuff they've been working on before. So, yeah, guys that are working with other high alloy stainless steel so they, they can make a good comparison with their previous work. You know, how well does it grind? How well does it finish? Um, and also guys that are known for testing their knives, you know, people that do cardboard cutting, rope cutting, uh, you know, chopping tests. Uh, those were the people we tried to send to. We got some really good feedback from several of the knife makers. Uh, Big Chris, he was on your podcast, I know. Uh, Great guy, too. He was, right? Yeah. Um, yep. Okay. All right. Got to make sure I'm not confused. No. <laughs> Big- no, you're good. Yeah. Sorry, what was that? I said you're good. Okay, so so Big Chris, he's a cool guy. He's a big dude. It's in his name. Uh, he uh, he likes to make chopping knives, smaller knives. He's uh, you know He works with a lot of high alloy steel, so he did some chopping tests. Uh, my buddy Sean Houston, he does a bunch of knife testing. He he makes YouTube videos. He did some some two by four chopping. He batoned through wood. He said he hated doing that, but it's a, a popular YouTube test, so he did it. Yeah. He uh, chopped through some nails, uh, and he compared it directly against an SE six, which is a, a popular knife known for having high toughness in ten ninety five, uh, and it it did better than that knife, obviously. Uh. My dad, he made some kitchen knives out of it. He says it's his new favorite kitchen knife steel. Uh, for those that don't know, my dad is Devin Thomas. He's known for making Damascus steel and kitchen knives. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Gregory, he made a, a chopper out Her of it. Back, 
back to your article that we were actually talking about it on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Uh, your dad mm-hmm. has a sand my uh, picture of the Magna Cut knife that he made, and that that's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, he makes a great knife. He laminated it, uh, you know, so it's got softer stainless steel sides. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it it he said it forges well. Niagara said it forged very well. They said it forged better than their other stainless grades. It forged more similarly to a non-stainless. Awesome. Uh, so hopefully that that is good in terms of productivity and delivery and those kind of things. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask about. This podcast is is focused more towards makers. Mm-hmm. So workability is is always a question. Um, in its annealed state, it how is it to work with? Yeah, annealed. I don't think I included this in my final article, but the annealed hardness is a couple points lower than all of the other stainless steels that I measured. So in the annealed condition, it should work fine. Uh, most of the knife makers were talking to me about how it was grinding in the hardened state. Uh, and they reported that it ground pretty easily compared to other high alloy steels, so easier than S35VN and S45VN. Uh, a couple of makers said easier than CPM-154. A couple said similar to CPM-154. Uh, so it grinds pretty easy. Uh, Matthew Gregory said that it, it grinds so easy in the hardened state, it, he, he was worried that something was wrong with it, like the edge retention was going to end up a lot worse than I was predicting it was going to before I had tested it. So he he was very surprised by the grindability. No, people that have been trying to grind 10V, it'll be way easier than that. Uh, it, so it'll. That is good to hear because I blow through a lot of Norton Blaze or uh, some of the Phoenix Purple Belts. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I can get that kind of performance without having to blow through an extra two or three belts of blade, that's that's a little bit of a godsend. Yeah, so that fine microstructure I was talking about, that's really what helps it with grindability. Uh, the hard vanadium and niobium carbides, you start to see those as you move up to higher grits. So the, the closer the abrasive size is to the carbide size, the more you notice the harder carbides. Uh, because niobium and vanadium carbides are harder than the abrasive in a standard uh, 2x72 belt. Because uh, those will be made of aluminum oxide. It's lower in hardness than vanadium carbide. So Matthew Gregory, he said that the crossover point was around 240 grit in his grinding. So as you're moving to finer and finer grits, that's when it'll become a bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, so mirror polish is is going to be challenging to all but the bravest of, of knife makers. Oh, satin, baby. I make working blades. Satin finish is all we need. Yeah, so satin finish, uh, to most guys, it won't be that big a deal. Hand sanding, it'll, it might be a little bit more work than, well, it'll be more work than CPM 154. If that's your favorite steel now, uh, it'll be a little more challenging. If you've used S35VN or S45VN, it'll even be a little bit easier than those. So oh, it, wow. it all depends on what your reference point is. My teenagers will be glad to hear that. <laughs> my punishment is, oh, you were five minutes late from curfew. You have to sand 35 blades. <laughs> that's a lot of blades <laughs> that is a lot of blades wow this is a harsh punishment i don't want to hear about an hour late yeah <laughs> i'm getting i'm getting some yeah. i'm getting some good ideas when the boys get older yeah oh, <laughs> dude, the whole reason to have kids is to do chores yeah unfortunately mine are only mine are only four and a half now but mm-hmm. never too early to start yeah no 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 once they can pick up a piece of sandpaper and understand sharp it's perfectly safe to have them in the in the shop. 
right. We've talked uh, a little bit about availability already. I don't want to talk mm-hmm. about it anymore because I'm already concerned about, and I got like half a connection at Niagara and I'm going to have to work that to try and get some of this. You know, you don't so, happen to know so what, ta- what about- time that goes live on the website, do you? No, I don't know. Maybe they should have announced a time. <laughs> oh, Maybe that would just lead to crashing just, I'm going to start at 0001. Yeah. I'll hit refresh about 100 times throughout the day. Yeah, you can go blind doing that. <laughs> I think you're looking at different things, Dan. <laughs> yeah, so what, Cruz, what Niagara's been telling me is that they're getting more phone calls about this deal than they've ever gotten before. So that that's why I'm I'm concerned about availability, not just because I'm so confident in my steel marketing abilities. You know, if you make it, they will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty cool. Uh, so uh, Knife Steel Nerds, we've talked a little bit about it. So it's website and it's Patreon, right? Yeah, KnifeSteelNerds.com. All of the articles go up there eventually. Uh, there are occasional exclusive articles to Patreon. Patreon is just a, a service where you can donate money to me. I use that money on buying equipment, buying steel, buying, you know, all the abrasives and other consumables. Uh, I spent a whole bunch of money when I, I did that big Catra study. So that's what Patreon stuff goes to. So we have some discussions on Patreon. You get articles a few days early and and certain exclusive things like leading up to Magna Cut. I did a bunch of new steel updates where I said like, oh, I just did some toughness testing. Here are the results. Uh, nobody else got to see the results until the big announcement of the steel a few days ago. What? Those are things on Patreon. And Patreon gives you access to the archives, correct? Yeah, you also get all the archives on Patreon, but uh, all the old articles are also on Knife Still Nerds, other than the Patreon exclusive. Those will only ever be on on the Patreon archives. Um, I'm going to throw my two cents on here. Mm-hmm. Guys, it's really worth five, ten bucks a month to make sure that this information is available. We've talked about some of the testing that he does and that very few people share the results because very few people can get the machinery. It's worth a couple of bucks a month to have this to be available. Yep. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I, I also love uh, the uh the old timey uh artwork and stuff you had for the the kind of like web or like page brochure type uh thing that you had or somebody did a graphic design for you yeah we have a little advertisement for for magna cut it's got a little guy grinding a knife on it and then uh then there's like some some selling point you know bullet points on on the other side and it's kind of in a retro 60s style newspaper ad so you know it says wow cool Mm -hmm on it kind of stuff uh it's really fun it was made by my uncle ralph thomas who is a a graphic designer and illustrator so he did an awesome job he also did the cover of my book knife engineering excellent uh so so you know he has a he has a lot of versatility you know the magna cut ad looks quite a bit different than the knife engineering cover Mm -hmm. uh and so i love the ad uh I did it in the 60s style in part because the the name comes from a steel that came out in like the 60s. So uh, a company called Vasco, they developed a bunch of steels. Uh, even if you've never heard of them, you've heard of steels that they developed because they developed M4, which is now sold as CPM M4. They developed a steel called Vasco MA, which is now CPM 1V. They developed uh, Vasco Die, which is now CPM 3V. 
uh, they developed Vasco Wear, which is now CPM Crew Wear or Z Wear. So they they developed a bunch of very significant steels, which were copied and sold by other companies because they were so good. One of the steels that they developed was called Hypercut. Uh, and they had a whole series of steels with cut in the name, like Red Cut, Telecut. Uh, they put cut in the name because they were high-speed steels. So high-speed steels are used in machining operations. Now, the, the cutting we do with knives is a little bit different, but you know we share the word cut. So I like the name Hypercut. I didn't get permission to use it, but I wanted to to give a nod to those steels and to Vasco. And so we ended up with the name Magna Cut. So uh, I was looking looking through advertisements for old steels, and I found an ad from the 60s for Hypercut. And it's like a space age ad. Um, there's even like uh, a dark space with stars. Um, back in the 60s, they were just really excited about space, as you'd imagine. Yeah. We'll, uh, so the space age was what everything was all about. We were going to have flying cars. <laughs> yeah, oh. things were really exciting in the 60s. I mean, if we, if we could land a man on the moon, we can do anything. Y'all got some answering to do. George Jeffrey <laughs> led me to believe that I was going to have a talking dog and a flying car by now. Or at least or mm-hmm. at least a maid to do all your stuff. Oh, yeah. Hey, where's my meal pills? <laughs> so, yeah, they, they were all excited about the space age. So I was looking at other 60s uh, time period advertisements um, and, you know, looking at the really cool ones with, uh, you know, lots of color and advertising style. So I went to my uncle and I said, hey, like, here's some ads I've been looking at. I think it'd be really fun if we could just do a little ad, you know, to promote on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, You know, maybe we'll do a magazine or something. I don't know yet. Um, And he was like, sure, let's do it. And uh, basically his first take was was very close to what we ended up with because he's that good. So I was really happy with how it turned out. We've got some good comments on it. Everybody seems to like it. Yeah. Is there any other uh, things you want to talk about? Any other steel stuff about Magna Cut or anything else you want to? let the let the listeners know about <laughs> well there's always more more steel stuff to talk about that's why i have my website knifestillnerds.com i haven't run out of things to write about yet or uh, tests to do so uh, there's there's always new articles usually every other week i come out with something i think my schedule was a little bit disrupted from magna cut because uh, you know we're trying to to announce it at the right time not too early not too late um so every other week we we have something new on there you know either toughness experiments, edge retention experiments, uh, you know, talking about the history of steel. There's always something new. Got my Instagram, Knife Steel Nerds. Yeah, that, that that's enough. Yeah, and we mentioned the the Patreon before also. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely worth it. Do you have any other questions, Dan? Um, I actually have, have had a sufficiency. Nice. Like, I now have to go back to the books and do a little more learning before I can ask intelligent questions. Very cool. Well, you can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. You can uh, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Tuned In Radio, iHeartRadio, and Amazon. Um, when I I uh, just happened to say, Alexa, play the Knife Perspective podcast, and sure enough, it asked me which one I wanted. So that's kind of cool, too. Um, you can keep in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives. And dogwoodcustomknives.com. Uh, he's uh, on Facebook and Instagram and annoy him on uh, through email, dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. And his booth uh, at Blade Show 537. Make sure you check that out and check him out and meet him. And me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives, cagedailyknives.com. 
and um, Cage Daily Knives on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, YouTube. I have a YouTube channel that I'm going to try to get back going, uh, doing some some videos and stuff. I haven't put anything out for like over two years, but uh, with the the full time knife maker thing, I think I'll have a little more time to hopefully do a little more educating. Uh, oh yeah, sure. You're gonna have extra time. Well, dude. Uh, it won't be. I'll get at least an extra hour and a half back a day for not having to drive to my commute's going to go from like an hour and a half to 10 seconds. So um, hopefully I'll get a little more time with that. I'll be at blade show table three double B and uh, make sure you uh, sign up for the, the file work class. If you're interested in that, uh, I think that's going to be a really fun time. Uh, make sure you check out uh, Laren's, um yeah, it'll be the second best class at the Blade Show. I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, make sure you check out Laren's uh, heat treating uh, class where he talks about uh, maximizing your heat treat. Uh, again, Laren, it was great having you on, and I'm really excited. I'm going to hit refresh about 100 times throughout the day, probably on, on Niagara, and uh, hopefully I don't see when I hit refresh, it just says out of stock. Yeah, that'll be April 2nd. You'll want to you'll want to check out <laughs> April second yeah. for that. No, April Fool's Day. That's when you got to check. Oh, th- <laughs> thanks for having me on, guys. It was awesome. Have me on anytime. All right, great. Uh, we'll we'll definitely take you up on that. All right, do you uh, want to say say good night, Dan? Oh, good night, Dan. <laughs> All right, bye, guys. Well, let's take it to the edge, cause that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective.